first time I ever left my home country of Pakistan was during my final year of med school when I went to work for a month at the Cleveland Clinic. The first time I saw the hospital, I felt like I had stumbled into one of the wonders of the world. Its buildings like shimmering pyramids and its infinity pool nearly spanning my field of view. Yet one of my lasting memories from that month is of making my first grocery run. As soon as I stepped off the hospital's grounds, I entered a different world filled with decrepit houses and broken roads, a world not too different from the low-income country I had just left. As American society works to overcome inequality, hospitals are uniquely positioned to become part of the solution. The people who run hospitals must think about what is truly their mission, not answerable to either shareholders or taxpayers, and they need to do more to serve their local communities. The health of those living in the neighborhoods surrounding hospitals should be at least as good as the health of the people they discharge each day. Hello, and welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, the founding editor of First Opinion, STAT's platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. This week, I have the good fortune to talk with Heather Harayich, a cardiologist, heart failure specialist, essayist, book author, and more. That conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Pat. I'm excited to talk to you, and uh, I've been working with you for such a long time, so it's great to be able to just chat. I agree. We started corresponding in 2017. It, it feels like I know you, but it's great to meet you, at least by Zoom. Well, it's it's the closest we can get with the pandemic, but uh, <laughs> I will say that everyone everyone has been you know talking talking down on Zoom and this virtual format, but I mean, there are so many advantages to this and just being able to do this from the comfort of my basement, having my own, you know, chai that I just made is is actually pretty, it, it is it is definitely a perk. I agree. So you've had a really interesting journey to working as a physician researcher at two Harvard-affiliated institutions, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Boston VA Healthcare. In the essay that you read at the top of the podcast, you described coming to the U.S. for the first time at the end of medical school in Pakistan. How did that trip come about? Well, it was the final year of our med school. Uh, our med school is a direct from high school med school. So, you know, you finish high school and then, you know, all of a sudden you're in med school. And that was the final year of my, of my med school, uh, which is at the Aga Khan University in Pakistan in Karachi. And uh, we had these a few months where we could do electives. And along with several other of my classmates, we had this wonderful opportunity to do uh, these elective rotations at hospitals in the United States. And uh, believe it or not, this was the first time I'd ever left my country. 
The first city that I had ever seen outside of uh, Pakistan was Cleveland, Ohio. And the first hospital I'd ever seen outside of Pakistan was the Cleveland Clinic. And I was just, I know, kind of floored by it. It, it is, you know, almost like a modern wonder of the world. And for someone like me, it was like standing in front of the pyramids of Giza, looking at these shiny buildings. And just the amazing care that patients could receive there was just a really mind-blowing experience for me. And uh, I, I look back at that time and think about, you know, how eight, that wasn't too long ago. That was just 2009, so just about 11 years ago. Uh, but B, that it really sort of uh, was uh, the first step in my journey into uh, American medicine and one that's really not not been sort of laid down through any plan, but has come about in a sort of a interesting, interesting way for sure. That's what life is all about. It's it's organic. Yeah. And uh, I, I think one of the things I was struck by at the clinic uh, was that we could provide such great, amazing care uh, to the patients that who came here, uh, came there. And uh, uh, and this is also true for really any other large academic medical institute uh, that, um, that you know, I've had the opportunity to work at, but that a lot of the impact of those institutions seems seem to not have the same type of umbrella effect that you would hope for on the communities that were around it. And, you know, I will say that my experience of, you know, going to medical school in a, you know, low-income country where I had seen really, you know, just, just a lot of, uh, cruelty inbuilt into the system because of how healthcare is paid for, how so few had the resources to access healthcare, where there was so much scarcity of education, of, of, of money. Uh, when I came here, I was expecting that I wouldn't see any of that. And that, that that would be a part of my life that I would just have to forget. And But when I came here, I saw that there were so many challenges that were uh, here. There were so many inequities built into the system. Uh, they were just different, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't what I'd expected. I, w- I, w- I will say. Well, let me let me ask you about that. What grabbed me about your essay on hospitals needing to earn their tax exempt status was your description of what happened when you went to your first grocery run. You you explained the wonder of seeing the Cleveland Clinic. What were you thinking when you stepped off the hospital grounds? Because the area around the Cleveland Clinic is significantly different than the clinic itself. Yes, and I'll just preface this by saying that this is this is really not a shot at any individual institution, but it but it, to me it was a very memorable experience. I, I'm someone who actually has a very poor memory, but this is one of those incidents I remember to this day. Uh, I uh, had been given a call room to stay in at the hospital, which was I was very fortunate to have, and uh, my diet was very very basic. I uh, you know my parents uh, didn't really have a lot of money. And I would essentially get a Subway footlong sandwich and I would have the first six inches in the for lunch and the, the, the rest for dinner. And the only thing else I had to keep myself uh, full was essentially just cereal. And I ran out of milk. And so I decided I'm just going to go out and get um, get get me some milk. And I, I and I stepped out and uh, it, it was such a different experience from being inside the institution to, you know, seeing, you know, what the outside 
uh, what the neighborhood outside it was where what what did it look like well it didn't look like it didn't have the same shiny glass towers that you know or or the same slick services for lack of a better word it it looked destitute and in some ways it looked similar to the sort of you know some of the neighborhoods that i'd seen growing up in pakistan where people didn't have resources where it didn't seem like their needs were being met or the or adequate services were being provided it was, and it was just like a few steps away from uh the shining sort of uh, almost spaceship like building did you see that kind of disparity inside the hospital as well among the workers you know i didn't notice it at, to begin with uh because i was because you know if you if you are a foreign medical graduate and you come to the united states i mean it's just a there's just such an ex, the experience is um is so overwhelming uh, of just seeing the sort of high end medicine that's being practiced uh, the way patients are presented all you know all the medical information that it was i was very very consumed with um just you know just surviving just you know i my english wasn't that fluent just making sure i didn't you know goof up and say something that was incorrect mm-hmm. or just trying to keep up with you know how fast everyone spoke and how fast everyone delivered information and processed information uh but but you know as i as i as i became a part of the health system as i became you know first a um, researcher and then an intern and resident and then i kind of overcame some of those uh you know initials sort or of challenges that's when i really started to notice that there were uh that those same lines of inequity that you saw outside uh were to some extent present on the inside as well and i think that that is represent some of the more recent writing that i've been able to do focused on some of those and really that have become so much more apparent since uh, uh the movement for racial justice that started uh last year where that topic which was you know kind of on the back burner is now very much on the forefront and it was something that's been there i think since i've come in but i think more and more it's only now that people have started to sort of talk about it in a more meaningful forceful way well, that echoes something that you said in the very first essay you sent us. It was on um, it was on a Republican health care plan. And, you know, you argued that that plan in 2017 would worsen inequality in America. And a line really stood out to me that you wrote, even though America appears to be one country, from an epidemiological point of view, it is, in fact, two the America that poor people live in is very different from the America the rich live in. So you were writing about that sort of before it became something that a lot of people were beginning to focus on. And and so much of it has to do with, you know, how I how I grew up. I mean, if you grow up in a place like Pakistan or India, those things are just a fact of life where you they're inescapable and uh, so much of the focus and so much of the discourse is around getting people enough food to eat getting people to have the respect uh, that they deserve overcoming a lot of the discrimination which wasn't you know when there was no where there was no attempt to even sort of hide it or mollify it and it really shaped my own sort of lens through which i saw medicine and I saw what we were doing. And, you know, I think that there, I think there have been a lot of people writing about those issues. I, I'm not the first one to, you know, come up with those observations, but certainly it, it didn't dominate the, our discourse and it didn't dominate the lens through which we see what we do in healthcare as much back then uh, as it does now, and which is, which is amazing. If you look at heart disease, as an example, we have all these therapies that can, 
reduce the burden of heart disease several folds and yet, and they all cost pennies. So, you know, if you can go to your local um, Costco or Walmart, you can get, you can pick up a statin, you can pick up all the sort of medications that can prolong and um, improve the life of people with heart disease. Um, and yet there's still so much disparity. And so I feel like, you know, I, I remember that, you know, when I was young in uh, high school, my favorite band was Rage Against the Machine. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I'm less angry now than I used to be. Uh, but I think that that type of uh, worldview shaped how I've, I looked at my experience as a medical student in Pakistan and as a and trainee and now a junior faculty member in medicine here in America. So Rage Against the Machine, that's, that's interesting. Um, which you were sort of raging against the machine in your essay on hospitals and their tax exempt status. Um, and you were looking at the fact that many of the richest and most profitable hospital systems in the U.S. enjoy tax exempt status. Now, that's something that's always baffled me that a hospital or any organization for that matter as a nonprofit can sort of make a profit. Can you can you explain that to me? It's like one of those things that I, when I first learned about it, it just didn't kind of make sense because, you know, the places that I worked at, you know, I've been very, very lucky throughout my training. I have, you know, worked at some of the, you know, some of the premier institutions in this, um, in this country, if not the world. And uh, it, it was always, it never felt like the, these places were nonprofit. And, um, and so when I first learned about this, it, it seemed kind of odd. Uh, but the reason I wanted to interrogate this more was because I, 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 you know, a lot of times physicians and people in medicine complain about when policy changes are instituted from the outside, when you know politicians or some other establishment uh, folks come in and tell us how to practice medicine and how to do better at what we're doing, and uh, and and you know, so much of that was you've, you've seen that enacted in policy, and I feel like as a physician. Uh, if you, you, you can complain about that if you didn't in, engage in it. I mean, if you look at the nonprofit status issue around hospitals, I mean, there are senators, Chuck Grassley, for example, has been on this case for, for a long time. A long time, yeah. And, and unless we in medicine can give them an alternative, unless we can give them a, a system in which you could maintain that, that type of policy, and also uh, further the mission uh, of healthcare and improving the health of all Americans, uh, then th those changes are going to come from the outside. They're going to be imposed on us. We're going to have no say in it. And then I would say that if we didn't engage in it, we won't have any right to complain. And especially if you look at the thought leaders in healthcare, a lot of them are physicians. Uh, and so they all work for hospitals. So it's easier to criticize pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and all these outside actors. And yet, when it comes to taking account for our own involvement or role in um, how expensive healthcare is and how poor the health of Americans is, we are we're more silent. And I feel like that's kind of part of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to write that piece was to uh, take account of what we are doing in healthcare ourselves, hold ourselves to a very, very high standard uh, that we expect others to hold uh, as well. Uh, and then think about creative ways that we can, um, uh, you know, we can find ways that uh, help uh, pay back the community that has enriched healthcare so much, uh, and that maintains a sort of mission of healthcare, uh, while also uh, not jeopardizing some of the perks that come with being 
a large nonprofit hospital. And that essay took me back to that first walk I took outside the clinic. Uh, and it really, but it came from that place. What sorts of things could hospitals do? Well, I think one thing that hospitals can do is uh, take account of the immense benefits that they're received. And then think about creative ways that they could use those benefits to pay back the communities that they exist in. And, you know, this is actually a great sort of uh, sort of uh, follow up to this story. So, you know, when I after I'd written this uh, essay, it was a few years ago, uh, just this last year, um, in the wake of protests uh, stemming from the murder of uh, George Floyd and this uh, resurrection of this really necessary discussion about the role that healthcare plays in perpetuating systemic racial injustice, uh, two uh, HMS students uh, reached out to me. Uh, they read this piece in Stat News, and they wanted to think about how we could frame uh, the role that hospitals can play in, in light of racial injustice. So what we did was we thought about these nonprofit practices. And, and one of the key things that came out of that was that we really need to find structure. We can't just leave it to every hospital to just essentially make up what they call a community benefit. So for example, some hospitals will say that um, that the lunch that they provide for their residents and interns is a community benefit, uh, which is completely not true. Others will say that we provided um, care for people who didn't have insurance and that's a community benefit. And actually that, that comes from a separate sort of pool. Uh, so what we wanted to do was really prioritize giving back to the communities that the hospitals are actually located in, the, the communities which uh, are deprived of the property taxes that the hospital would have been paying if they were nonprofit, and to incorporate uh, racial justice in, in those community benefits. And, and, and the way to do that is by providing that structure, and that structure should be provided by the academic medical center so that we can complain when you know Chuck Grassley or some other senator comes in and you know helps pass a law that doesn't incorporate any of our own viewpoints, one of the th other things that I uh, suggested was that hospitals should match community benefit to their marketing budgets. So it is you know again hmm. ironic that you know if you're listening to NPR, if you're you know watching TV, you know often, or if you're just driving on the highway, you'll see billboards, you'll hear ads from your local or sort of your internationally renowned cancer center advertising their services. And again, that's that's completely acceptable. But then that should be matched with uh, that should, with the benefit that they provide to their community locally. So to close, I'd, I'd like to turn to your uh, Yellow Beret essay, um, which you submitted at what I thought was a perfect time because we were closing in on publishing our 2000th first opinion. And when yours arrived, I knew exactly what I wanted to be our 2000th first opinion. Can you tell listeners briefly who the Yellow Berets are? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was in residency when one of my um, senior research mentors, there was some type of, you know, holiday party or something. And he said, do you know about the Yellow Berets? And I said, no. Well, he said, well, you should read about them. And that should be, you should write about them. And so um, I went about doing just that, uh, although it took a few years. Uh, but the Yellow Berets were essentially um, is a term that is used for um, a re two-year research program um, at the NIH called the NIH uh, Clinical Associates uh, Program. And essentially, it was a program for folks, for medical students, uh, to do two years of research at 
the NIH. And then they could go back, either they could continue on or they could go back uh, to their respective institutes um, to continue their career. Now, this program had been started since uh, around the time of the uh, Korean War, but there was a lot of interest in this program during the Vietnam War because this was one of the only ways that, um, that you know, service eligible uh, men, mostly men, because only mostly men applied for this and, and got into this program, uh, could avoid um, being drafted into Vietnam, which is a historically unpopular war. And what this program turned out into was, you know, what I believe is the greatest medical research program in really the history of um, modern medicine. It, uh, within just a couple of years, it produced, I believe, eight Nobel Prize winners. But one of the most famous graduates of that program is Tony Fauci. Uh, and I found, geez, like, how does this happen? How does this war that is, that, you know, is, is really, you know, tragedy for all involved, um, develop, lead to unintentionally um, the, the sort of advances that we have, that have saved so many, many more lives than were ever saved in the war. Uh, and then I, when I learned about this story, I started interviewing folks. I spoke to so many people. Uh, you know, eminent Nobel Prize winners like, um, you know, Bob Lefkowitz, who was at Duke, but then also their mentors who are still active in research. I spoke to Tony, Tony Fauci. And, you know, what came together was just this glory story of science, of, of people who just uh, were, uh, you know, had this amazing um, experience there. But also the program was not perfect either. It was the definition of the old boys club. Uh, I, I might say old white boys club. And in some ways, uh, perpetuated the inequities, uh, uh, the sort of gender-based and racial inequities we see in academic medicine leadership, because the impact of that program has been so so powerful and so broad. In the in the essay, um, it must have been in one of your conversations with Anthony Fauci, he called himself this, or you called him the self-proclaimed dummy. So he must have said that he was the dummy of the class in the interview. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, Dr. Fauci has done a lot of interviews, but then, but being on the phone with him on the other side, and I knew that the only reason he spoke to me was because he wanted to, he wanted to speak about this. It, it was, he was probably, you know, it wasn't another COVID piece. It was going to be about something that was special to him. He's spoken about this a, a bunch of times, but being, you know, on one side of the sort of phone with him on the other side, talking about this with just an amazing passion uh, was 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 really special and uh, and yeah it was such a uh, it was such a prodigious group of uh, of folks Harold Warmus, uh Joe Goldstein Bob Lefkowitz they were all you know and, and others were all in the same class and I I and just to be able to hear their stories uh, from them directly um, and see how it shaped them and how they're still so passionate about it was pretty pretty cool. Well, you're a physician researcher yourself, so their stories must have spoken to you. Did anything in the conversation surprise you? The real um, story there was the story of the physician scientist, of how the, the, what we do and what we see at the patient's bedside can inspire us. So again, going to show that, you know, what is what the, the value of, of being um, at the bedside? Of, of, of seeing a patient, of hearing a story, and using that story to um, inspire you uh, to answer the questions that, you know, that, that are asked and remain unanswered at the patient's bedside. 
And so all of these things are connected, but it really starts um, with what you see and what you do as a physician. And I feel like that's been the recurring theme, at least of my writing, is that I've, I've found it uh, an extension uh, of what I feel and, and, and the, the ideas that I have and the emotions that I feel um, when I'm treating patients. And that's what keeps me going. Well, I hope that you have the same success with both your clinical practice and your research and your writing um, that you deserve. It's, uh, I look forward to continuing to read more from you, and I really relish this opportunity to speak with you um, today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a, it's a such a pleasure, and uh, I've had such a blast writing for you. So um, I know you, you. The last time I sent you a piece, you rejected it. I, I won't hold that against you. <laughs> uh, but uh, keep an eye on your inbox. There's going to be more to come. That's great to hear. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the First Opinion podcast. Thanks to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Thanks to executive producer Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. 